0: As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward
1: every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few
2: moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me. Us. We want to
1: talk right down to earth. I know, I know, I know. I say this every week in and week out that I have legends on the Malcolm Effect as guests, but I wouldn't say if it wasn't true. We have none other than the People's Historian, Doctor Gerald Horn. I don't have a round of applause feature, but welcome to the Malcolm Effect. Well, thank you for inviting me. No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I announced that you'll be coming on the show, and people ask one of the, one of the things they ask me straight away is, does Doctor Gerald Horn is he aware that a clip that he's on the Brenda. Joy Gray's show became a meme, a viral meme?
0: <laughs> no, I wasn't aware. What, uh, about what issue, for example?
1: It was the issue when you said, don't make excuses for these backward Euro- Euro-Americans. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to that has say, become I was, a mainstay of social media. I was somewhat irked by that aspects of that conversation, shall we say.
1: I totally understand, totally hmm. understand.
0: So, Christian, I'm going to defer to you because I know you have the first question.
2: Yeah, so I just wanted to open up with a general question about history because you're a historian. So I wanted to ask, you know, what is the importance of history and more importantly, a materialist history in changing the political, social, and economic reality of today? What is the role of the historian?
0: Well, oftentimes when you go to a physician, a doctor, a medic, a nurse, and you have a malady or something that's bothering you physically, one of the first things you may be asked is to give a medical history, that is to say, issues concerning your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents, because it's felt by the person examining you that something might be passed down to you or that that will provide insight into what is bothering you today. And likewise, I think that the value of history is that it provides an analysis of the past that tells us where we are today or gives insight into where we are today. And to that degree helps to provide guideposts and signposts for this future and for the struggle that has to be conducted to reach a positive future. And so part of the role of the historian today In 2022, is to the extent possible to provide an accurate history of the past, an analysis that suggests or instructs how we got to this point we are today. And that hopefully by providing that narrative, you are also providing uh, implicit, if not explicit, instructions as to what should be done immediately and certainly what should be done in the near future
2: Mm -hmm. yeah no i think uh i think that answer kind of completely encompasses uh what what some one of the things that struck me about your work and and one of the and that thing being your ability to situate the struggle and circumstance of black americans in relation to uh global and political social processes and you do this in in two ways that are really significant to me you know situating the struggle of Afro-Americans and making that an entry point to understanding the subjugation of other peoples, but also identifying the circumstance of African-Americans as as part of a larger global and and political uh, phenomenon and process that's going on. So I say that because, you know, you've laid this out historically. I mean, you've you've studied this historically in, in many of your works. But, you know, to bring that into the now, you know, to offer prescription for now, what do you think is is kind of the the role that that Black Americans have, and and how what what kind of solutions are available that that can not only alleviate the problems being faced in this country, this country being the the states, but being part of a larger global internationalist movement?
0: Well, as I've suggested in some recent works dealing with enslavement, the fact of the matter is is that the battlefield here in North America was oftentimes adverse for people of African descent. You had a substantial class of European settlers and invaders, many of whom were affluent, many of whom were not. And with regard to the latter, I guess you could say from a class perspective, there were distinctions and commonalities. An enslaved population is basically a a population of unpaid labor. With regard to the European and Euro-American working class, they were paid, oftentimes not paid well, but certainly you can't say that they were like slaves in terms of being unpaid. And in any case, that distinction oftentimes meant that they threw in their lot with those across the class barricade speaking of the euro-american elite because many of the euro-american working poor thought that they could climb the greasy pole of success by this kind of class collaboration and certainly if you look at this process this project known as settler colonialism whereby europeans invaded and ousted the, the indigenous from the land uh, many of the euro and Euro-American working poor felt they had a stake in ousting the indigenous from the land because they thought they they could get a part of that land. Or, for example, post the U.S. Civil War, that is to say post-1865, oftentimes on uh, Euro-indigenous land, you had these universities established, these so-called land-grant universities established. And those universities oftentimes did not admit Black students or indigenous students, but they did admit students from the Euro-American working class, who then could become educated and become a member of the professional stratum. Uh, speaking of engineers, doctors, lawyers, uh, etc. And so, in some, because of these adverse class conditions on the battlefield of North America, black people in particular had to lengthen the battlefield, which meant internationalizing the struggle. Uh, That also meant domesticating the struggle to a certain degree, that is to say alignments with Native Americans, indigenous, but it also meant internationalizing the struggle seeking aid in Mexico, for example, completing a book on that now as we speak, or seeking aid in the Caribbean, seeking aid in Canada and Western Europe. And to fast forward, so what happens over the past 60, (laughs) 70 years or so is that the United States finds itself embroiled in the Cold War conflict with the socialist camp, finds itself in an ad- disadvantageous position in terms of winning hearts and minds in an emerging Africa and an emerging Caribbean, as long as people of African descent in North America are treated so horribly. So basically, a deal was cut with the centrist and liberal leadership particularly of an organization that's still with us, known as the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, whereby in return for throwing overboard the most internationalist-minded leaders and organizations, I'm thinking of Paul Robeson in the first place. I wrote a biography of him that was published a few years ago, this Black American entertainer, activist, socialist, multilingual individual who understood and spoke about two dozen languages and therefore was internationalism personified. And so those leaders were thrown overboard in return for anti-racist concessions and erosion Mm -hmm. of U.S. apartheid. And basically what happens is that in return, the centrist and liberal leadership would sort of detach the Black American struggle from the struggles of people in the Caribbean and Africa, which had been the case, particularly per the leadership, not only of Robeson, but his comrade W.E.B. Du Bois, who happened to be of Haitian descent, by the way. But the problem with that strategy is that today in 2022, it's not clear to me, at least, if the liberal elite, the liberal wing of the U.S. ruling class can save itself, let alone save us. (laughs) And we on the other hand, don't have as many international alliances or allies as we enjoyed in the past, which means things look rather bleak right now, which is why uh, some of us are suggesting a reigniting of these international alliances uh, to build more bridges across the oceans and across the seas and across the borders. And some of that is happening, but it's not happening rapidly enough And since it's not happening rapidly enough, it's unclear if we'll be able to stave off the rapid rise of the ultra-right and neo-fascist forces. Thank you so much for that. I guess in line with what
1: you were saying then, how would you respond to the question, what does building Pan-African look like for this generation? Or what should it look
0: like? Well, for example, uh, as we speak, the African Union just concluded, or still may be uh, having, the summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And this was preceded a few months ago by a very important summit that took place between the African Union and the Caribbean community, that's to say Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, etc., where a number of agreements were brokered. And around the same time, shortly after the AU, African Union CARICOM Summit, there was another summit in Mexico City of uh, Caribbean and Latin American nations. Now, what was striking about all of these summits is that uh, Black Americans were generally absent, not only absent, but many of the leaders even didn't even know that the meetings were taking place. That's that's part of the problem. And so I think to answer the question of what does Pan-Africanism look like in the 21st uh, century and 2022 going forward, I, I think we need to re uh, those relationships that have been torn asunder. Uh, there should not be meetings of the ones like the ones I've just described, where representatives of the forty-plus million Black American population are not present. Since mm-hmm. this forty-plus million population makes it larger uh, than the population of a number of independent African states, uh, certainly larger than most of the Caribbean nations, uh, certainly larger than the population of Iswatini and Botswana and Namibia and Togo and nations too numerous to mention. So this will obviously have to involve a certain kind of consciousness. I hate to sound a pessimistic note, but I'm not sure if that consciousness is present as we speak, but certainly there are those among us like myself who will be trying to forge that consciousness this year in the indefinite future.
2: No, I, I kind of wanted to ask, uh, you know, how would you define the the consciousness uh, as of now, right? Like, I remember you speaking before about the importance of the Bolshevik revolution, and uh, it shifting the dif- discourse in the states from that of religion and race to class. You know, how, how would you define the, the paradigm of discourse today? You know, it's, uh, as we've kind of laid out, you know, it's not outrageous to suggest that America lacks a level of class consciousness, and especially in an era of neoliberalism, ushering in the decline of working class power and working class institutions, as well as, you know, it's also fair to say that our mainstream discourses on race are fairly anemic and they lack a sense of materiality.
0: So how would you define the discourse of today? Well, in the United States, I would say it's somewhat poverty stricken. On many levels, I'm very hopeful, however. I mean, I'm in touch with a number of younger activists and scholars, and I find that we're on the same page and we're thinking along parallel lines. The question is to what extent do these younger activists and scholars represent a broad cross section of opinion in the Black community and the African community of North America? I will not venture a guess, but. I would also say, and I'm always hopeful, so let me make a hopeful comment right now. I just gave an interview where Mm. I pointed out that uh, there is a crisis of French imperialism right now. And France, as you know, is a major vampire in Africa, because Mm. on the one hand, you have uh, President Macron of France talking about strategic autonomy and distancing itself distancing France from the the United States and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, led by the United States, which seems hell-bent on starting a major conflict on the Ukraine-Russian border, which has led President Macron, of course, to make a a hairy trip to Moscow and Chancellor Schultz of Germany to make a hairy trip to Washington. So at the same time, President Macron, in order to maintain this neo-empire in Africa, particularly in Mali, Burkina Faso, any kind of Cree, Chad where you've all had where we've all witnessed coups or irregular changes of government such as in Chad in order to maintain that neo- empire which is now under threat and under fire uh, in all of those countries France has to rely upon u.s imperialism which is the ultimate guarantor of world imperialism rely upon its uh, aerial assets and satellite assets to begin with So France is trying to ride two horses going in different directions at the same time, which usually does not augur well for the rider. And this could lead to significant changes in Africa, at least in so-called French West Africa, although I don't think we should be premature. And at the same time, uh, we see that U.S. imperialism is not only in a crisis vis-a-vis the European Union, Uh, But also, there is a distinct possibility that the global correlation of forces is changing, changing rapidly, and that the baton that was passed from London to Washington post-1945 is in the process of being passed to the People's Republic of China. Now, this, it seems to me, is part of the hysteria in the United States right now, which has led to this uh, historical reaction, the anti-Asian violence that you've seen, the anti-Black violence that you've seen has been fueled simultaneously. However, crisis, as the saying goes, involves both danger and opportunity. Now, I've just sketched the danger in terms of alluding to the violence that's being inflicted upon the Asian Pacific community, on the Black community. Uh, You may have seen the most recent scandalous video from Minneapolis where this young man, Amir Locke, is shot while he's sleeping on his sofa as the police burst into the place where he's sleeping. That's becoming all too common nowadays. But with the changing correlation of forces, that creates favorable conditions for change in consciousness. Just like in your opening remarks, you mentioned how the Bolshevik revolution had a dynamic impact upon consciousness here in the United States of America. Uh, it led, at least temporarily, to a reigniting of global alliances, global struggles. You saw that particularly in the 1930s with the Scottsboro case. These are nine black youth in Alabama who were charged falsely and maliciously with rape of 2 year American women, like so many before and perhaps since they were headed for execution Uh, before the international left and their comrades here in North America intervened and created an international struggle around U.S. apartheid, not unlike the anti-apartheid struggle that led to the liberation of South Africa by 1994. So it's possible that with this crisis of U.S. imperialism that I've just sketched, which also involves a crisis of world imperialism, reference my remarks to France, uh, this could create favorable conditions for a new burst of class consciousness and also a new assault on the neoliberalism you just made reference to. But, you know, there's an old saying, which is that if there's potential, you're basically suggesting that it hasn't happened. And so <laughs> that's what I'm saying now. There's potential for that, but obviously it has not happened.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned the kind of resting of France upon U.S. imperialism. So my question, and people often say this a lot, people are either unsure of or unaware. Do you mind just telling us about exactly what is AFRICOM and what they do?
0: So AFRICOM (laughs) is the, uh, the the U.S. military command that shadows the African continent because U.S. imperialism and indeed world imperialism, and not only world imperialism, have benefited handsomely over the centuries from exploitation of Africa. That's, that's why there's so much hysteria right now, not only about the Chinese role in Africa, the Russian role in Africa, the Turkish role in Africa, the Indian role in Africa, because the North Atlantic countries have seen Africa as their private preserve. Uh, after all, mm-hmm. it's supplied to North America with uh, millions of unpaid workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, even today, a good deal of the raw materials that fuel the economies of the North Atlantic bloc comes from Africa. Think of the bauxite and iron from guinea conakry for example. Uh, think of all the resources that are embedded in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, including coltan, which is a major element that goes into these now ubiquitous smartphones that you see people wielding. Think of the gold of South Africa, the oil of Angola, Nigeria, etc. And so, U.S. imperialism and North Atlantic imperialism would like to continue that stranglehold, but it's unclear if they will be able to do so. And that's one of the reasons why we need to reactivate the internationalism of the Black American community, which is in the belly of the beast, as we used to say at one time, and therefore can have decisive impact upon the machinations of the heavyweight champion of US, of world imperialism, which is U.S. imperialism. And so once again, the elements are there for that kind of advance of anti-imperialist forces. The question is, uh, will it take place? Now, you may want to refresh my recollection about your question so I can address it a bit more pointedly.
1: No, I think you did, actually. But yeah, if you want to just, peep- just like let the listeners know what exactly is AFRICOM and what they do.
0: Well, so AFRICOM, its, it's duty is to provide, as I said, with regard to France, a yeah. satellite resources so that France can keep an eye upon Mali and Burkina Faso and other French assets. Uh, AFRICOM also has a base, a military base in Djibouti on the East African coast. It has cooperation agreements. It it basically uh, funds the Egyptian military. And the Egyptian military is not only a military, it it controls a good deal of the Egyptian economy. Uh, AFRICOM has close relations with Morocco. Morocco, of course, has been a kind of comrade in arms of the United States ever since the United States was founded. In fact, I say in my 16th century book that going back to the end of the 16th century, Morocco uh, was allied with London in terms of eroding the strength of the Shanghai empire, uh, which when it was that strength was eroded, it had uh, uh, knock on effects throughout Africa, uh, helping to reignite the coming uh, African slave trade or reanimate the African slave trade, I should say. I should say. So uh, AFRICOM also tries to make sure that uh, other African nations Uh, do not uh, necessarily uh, stray out of the North Atlantic sphere. For example, in the U.S. press of late, there have been a lot of negative articles about Equatorial Guinea, uh, which is a major oil supplier to the United States of America, and uh, has corrupt leadership. The uh, Obiang family uh, has produced offspring, one of whom has a mansion in Malibu, one of the most affluent communities in Southern California, and has one of the largest collections of Mac- Michael Jackson memorabilia on planet Earth, Michael Jackson being the <laughs> late uh, Black American entertainer. I'd like to see that. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's basically been a comrade in arms of U.S. imperialism, but they're worried that the leaders of Equatorial Guinea are reading the newspapers and they can read what I read about the rise of China. And so there were all these scare articles about how Equatorial Guinea was going to uh, creep closer to China. And so you, you know the scenario when you see these newspaper articles. What happens yep. is that there will be a lot, a flood of negative articles about Equatorial Guinea, most of whom, which will be true because it's a human rights graveyard, quite frankly. But mm. you didn't see these articles until <laughs> the leadership there started talking about getting closer to China. And then there'll be some sort of, you know, the leader will die in a plane crash, or there'll be a coup, a military coup, or perhaps he'll die in an automobile crash, uh, et cetera. And the preserve of U.S. imperialism in Equatorial Guinea will be preserved. Now that's the role of Africa, but it's not only the role of Africa. Africa, it's also the role of the U.S. intelligence agencies. Uh, many of you are familiar with the Central Intelligence Agency, which is, of course, uh, has a specialty involving dirty tricks and coups and, and the like. Uh, but at last count, there are about 18 different intelligence agencies in the United States, headquartered in Washington. Oftentimes, the right hand doesn't know what the far right hand is doing. And so there's the Central Intelligence Agency, there's the National Security Agency, which specializes in satellite surveillance. There's Naval Intelligence there's DIA defense intelligence. I mean, and so in league with AFRICOM, their job is to keep not only Africa in line, not only the Caribbean in line, but to keep the world in line. But this is an unsustainable proposition since there are so many problems in the United States. I mean, there's a mayor's race in Los Angeles right now. And one of the leading candidates has proposed that she will, if elected, make sure the 15,000 homeless are housed in her first year. That'll leave thousands and thousands and thousands of more homeless on the streets of Los Angeles, for example. And Los Angeles is not unusual. In most of the major cities in the United States, you have legions, small armies of homeless people. So here you have the spectacle of US imperialism cruising around the world, overthrowing governments, instructing governments on their human rights records, and at the same time, containing thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless people, not to mention people who don't get enough to eat. So wow. this is an unsustainable crisis. Uh, the country can't go on this way. And so something has to give, but what will give is another story.
2: Right, right. Yeah. No, the the epidemic of homelessness in the US is truly egregious. I, I know um I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. They, they even evicted homeless people from an, an encampment called Tent City. They managed to evict people who were homeless, which was ridiculous. But I, I wanted to kind of dial it back and, and talk about something you had mentioned before, a word you had mentioned before, that being class collaboration. And, you know, I was reading your book, The Counter Revolution of 1776, and one thing that struck me about it. Was how complicated and messy, you know, the the political happenings from which the U.S. arose. Right? You had the indigenous, the enslaved Africans, the settlers, the various uh, European mother countries, and all occupying various social and class positions, economic and political interests. And these groups are then forming a a number of permutations of political alliances to engage in conflict. And you know, it reminds me of reading, you know, Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, or even watching the. uh, the film "Burn", Burn by Montecorvo, mm. you know, who mm-hmm. uh, who also uh, directed uh, "The Battle of Algiers." Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could speak more to this phenomenon of uh, class collaboration, and you know, taking it into today, you know, how how do we navigate, you know, forming forming the proper alliances between you know a great deal of of many
0: groups. Well, you know, I, I did this book on the 16th century. The origins of settler colonialism here in North America. And the story I tell, in part, is that London was a late comer to the banquet of settler colonialism. And this was taking place in the context of religious wars, particularly between Catholics, Catholic Spain, which and Catholic Portugal, and London or England, defected to the Protestant side. Recall 1517, Martin Luther. Uh, defects, secedes from the Catholic Church, and London joins in. They're the scrappy underdogs, Uh, they're under siege, and being under siege, they decide to move in a different direction. Spain specialized in religious sectarianism. Uh, You may recall the Spanish Inquisition of the 1400s, whereby you had to be Catholic or you were tortured, Or executed, that led to the expulsion of the Jewish community in particular, and also the expulsion of the Muslim population, which had been ruling Spain for centuries up until the end of the 1400s. And so what happens is that England, which had expelled this Jewish population at the end of the 13th century, but being under siege, they welcome the Jewish population fleeing Spain and Portugal, and they move from religion as a dividing line in society to quote, race, unquote, as a dividing line of society, or pan-Europeanism is another way to put it. And this involves a reconciliation at home, that is to say, in what we come to call Britain, uh, between and amongst the English and the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh in particular. And so by the time that England crosses the Atlantic in the 1580s to, to establish a settlement in what they call North Carolina, which ultimately is extinguished, uh, you see that the invaders, the settlers, have different class backgrounds because they all stand to benefit, at least they think they stand to benefit, from taking the land from the Native Americans and stocking that land with enslaved Africans. And settler uh, settler colonialism, which is a system that still obtains here in North America, is basically grounded Uh, in the first instance, on class collaboration between and amongst the uh, original settlers. Now, what happens is that the enslaved Africans probably, despite my criticisms over the past half hour or more, probably have been more enmeshed in class struggle than other populations, other demographics in this country, starting with the enslaved population. Uh, which was involved in relentless class struggle against the slave owners. And what's interesting is that even people on the, quote, left, unquote, even people who th- say that class struggle is their North star, is their lodestar, when it comes to analyzing the origin of the United States, they feel compelled to impute class collaboration to the enslaved population so that, the, so that it will all seem that we all supported the origins and the founding of the United States, which, of course, is false. Mm -hmm. And if you proceed on a false premise, you usually wind up in deep trouble, which is where we are now. And so this class struggle amongst the African population continues. Uh, Even today, the population most prone to join unions is the Black population. The the problem is that that kind of class uh, struggle background and history Or, class struggle instinct in 2022 is not necessarily embraced by other demographic groups. And of course, the black population is only 13% of the US population of 330 million. And so that means that it's difficult for us to win these class battles, these class struggles on our own. And then it leads to the other point, which is that at a certain point. It, it reminds me, and I'm doing this book on uh, Texas in the uh, 19th century. And Texas, is, of course, has a hor- horrible history. But y- you see that at a certain point, with regard to, say, the Native American population, which is in the process of being subjected to genocide, at a certain point, they feel that they have to cut a deal they, with, with the settlers, because they feel that the settlers are all powerful. And I think you have a, a similar instinct that arises Amongst a segment of the black population today, uh, they feel, or some feel, I should say, some feel that they have to cut a deal <laughs> with with these uh, with these imperialists because they seem to be mighty, they seem to be on the upswing. But as I said, if they understood the international situation uh, a bit more clearly, uh, they would recognize that these settlers are not as strong as they appear to be. Mm-hmm. But that particular attitude then leads to a certain kind of class collaboration amongst the black population too which ultimately is
1: self-defeating thank you for that we've spoken a lot about raising consciousness and, and in being involved in class struggle and raising class consciousness i had a question it's something that's people you know maybe online speak about and it's always in different kind of discussions debating over and this is that a part of raising the consciousness, or de- is dependent on the rehabilitation of certain leftist movements and figures from the past, re- rehabilitating their image in order to get a mass buy-in from the po- from populations from public. Sorry, don't know you what you think of
0: that. Well, well certainly, I-, I think we have to proceed on many multiple fronts. Um, mm-hmm. I think we have to proceed on the domestic front. Uh, we have to organize student unions, for example, to curb, if not eliminate, student debt, which is now in the trillions, by the way, which is one of the reasons why students have to take these, or people when graduate, they have to take these terrible jobs because there's so much debt. They have to take out so many loans. And we have to organize tenant unions to help to arrest this horrible homeless situation. We have to organize unions of laboring people, working people, That, that of course, is the nub because oftentimes that's the foundation for organizing uh, other kinds of of, of unions of tenants and students, for example. But we also have to operate on on the international front, and that's where our mass organizations like the NAACP uh, have to be won over because they have the infrastructure, they have chapters from the Atlantic to the Pacific, they still have thousands of members, they still have a treasury, but winning such an organization. Uh, to internationalism is is more than a notion. I mean it's not easy. If it had been easy, it probably would have been, been done by now. So I do think, say re- referring to these younger activists and scholars that I've been in touch with, I do think that they have to get buy-in from liberal forces because the forces to the left or a minority within a minority within a mon- minority. And so you have to build bridges uh, to these other forces. Uh, you have to build bridges across the seas and across the boundaries. But what do you think about a centralized leadership? I, I
2: know on you had an appearance on another podcast where you were talking about kind of the the Black Lives Matter movement and in and movement today, there is a romanticization of decentralized re- leadership and you know, I know some of this even goes back to, right, Ella Baker and SNCC and stuff. But what, what do you think about the role of centralized leadership and a desire to, and a current desire to, to move away from that?
0: Well, usually when I talk about this issue, I, I try to tread carefully because Black Lives Matter, they're really under siege right now. They're under fire. I mean, Right, right, right. The Klaus right. class wants to put these people in jail. I mean, if not mm-hmm. liquidate them altogether. And so I, I don't want to accidentally contribute to their problems. But still, having said that, <laughs> I do think that there's been too much negative propaganda against centralized leadership. It's almost like the oppressor telling the oppressed, you know, you, you folks really shouldn't organize, you know, because things are fine no. as they are. Yeah. And I, I think that If you have an organization that's protesting against police terror, which is the major function of a movement like Black Lives Matter, well, they're not the first group that tried to do that. Uh, I mentioned the Scottsboro case. You had the International Labor Defense, which was quite successful. They were driven out of business by the U.S. authorities. You had the Civil Rights Congress, which Paul Robeson worked with. They're the ones who filed a petition at the United Nations in 1950-51, charged the United States with genocide against Black people. A very important development, but of course, it led to their being driven out of business, led to Robeson's passport being snatched and his comrades being jailed. And so I think that improper conclusions have been drawn from that brief history I've just spoken to, which suggests that centralized groups have to end in failure and that if you have a decentralized group without a centralized head, that it'll be difficult to defeat that group. Because usually what happens when you have a centralized group, same thing happened with the Black Panther Party, is that you cut off the head and then the body shrivels or dies. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is you have a decentralized group, there's no head to cut off. But you know, the authorities. there's a US attorney, there are prosecutors and district attorneys in every jurisdiction in the United States. And so What usually happens, just like you had a Black Lives Matter leader, Black Lives Matter movement leader in Memphis, just sentenced to six years in jail for registering to vote. Apparently, she had been told that despite the fact she had a felony on on her record, she could register to vote. She took that advice and now she's going to jail. And you have all these scare stories about Black Lives Matter leaders in Southern California and how they may be on the verge of indictment. So just because you have a decentralized group, it doesn't mean that the ruling class won't be able to figure it out and just say, okay, Mm. I know what. We'll just go after the different leaders because you you, you wind up with leaders anyway. It's just that the leaders don't necessarily confer on a regular basis at conventions, for example. I mean, you could do a Google search and find Black Lives Matter uh, leaders in New York and Southern California and Memphis, et cetera, And the authorities can do that same Google search and then go after these people. So I'm not sure if the premise is functional. That is to say that decentralization is somehow the remedy. I'm not even saying necessarily for all purposes that centralized leadership is the remedy. But I do think that the propaganda against centralization really needs to be rethought. uh, Because Mm -hmm. if you look at successful liberation struggles... Or liberation struggles that were somewhat successful. Uh, for example, those in Southern Africa, where you know I wrote this book, "White Supremacy Confronted," on the liberation struggles in Southern Africa, including Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Namibia, etc. They all, to a to a certain degree, had centralized leadership and centralized organizations. And now, of course, you can say that, oh, okay, well. There are problems still in Southern Africa, but I think that the the problems, as I say at the end of the book has a lot to do with the international situation as much as the domestic situation in Southern Africa. So in any case, I do think that the, there needs to be a rethinking of this uh, attack on the idea of centralization. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask another question about, you know, current movement, you know, that there's a, a movement called ADOS and, uh, you know, their, their big platform or their big goal is to kind of score reparations. But in order to do so, they kind of are locating or, or defining who, who would be considered, you know, a foundational Black American. And when reading your work, it just seems so complicated, you know, to how you would even define that, you know, given, you know, as we've talked about before, the various, you know, political happenings ac- happening across various territories in the new world. And so I guess, I mean, the, the question of reparations is a very serious one and a very important one. But, you know, when the foundation of a, of a nation has been bathed in the blood of many, you know, how, how do we uh, properly approach the question of reparations?
0: Well, reparations has to be internationalized. I mean, the polls suggest that the settlers and their descendants are hotly opposed to reparations, which is not surprising which means that the reparation struggle is serious, it has to be internationalized. Uh, it, it has to involve putting pressure on the United States from external forces. Likewise, the, the question of ADOS is, is very complicated. Needless to say, uh, the so-called foundational Black Americans, and I guess I would be considered one since my parents were born in Mississippi as were their parents and great grandparents, et cetera, and come from a slave background in North America. But as suggested, these so-called foundational Black Americans need all the help they can get. <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> cutting ourselves, I was speaking about cutting ourselves off from international forces. We can't cut ourselves off from other Black people in North America, to be sure. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, if, if, if you look I have a footnote in my 1776 book that comes early on, where I point out that the US authorities have a special hostility and animosity towards the descendants of mainland enslaved Africans, that is to say, so-called foundational Black Americans. It's just like, for example, I noticed when I first started going to London to do research, that I've been told I have this US accent, you see? And so, there's a lot of accent discrimination in in the UK, definitely. Yeah, uh, to the point where people they could even tell what block, what neighborhood you grew up on, depending on your accent, and then that becomes a, a basis for discrimination, if not persecution. So, uh, I, I'm well aware that in the UK, if you're of Jamaican or Nigerian, Ghanaian heritage, you will be treated worse than. A person like myself who is said to be a U.S., uh, said to have a U.S. accent. And then, you know, London's trying to build this alliance with U.S. imperialism. And so I'm a U.S. taxpayer. And so they feel that they ch- treat me differently. So, I mean, that's that's the way politics works. And so I think that the ruling class feels that because they have, in North America, that they have so much hostility to the so-called foundational Black Americans, Now I have to underline so-called, that uh, perhaps they can make deals <laughs> with uh, other groups uh, to our detriment, uh, because as I've tried to indicate through many of the histories that I've written, there has been a long-standing desire in North America to expel the black population altogether. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's been so seriously considered, and in the future, I don't think it can be ruled out. So we have to be very careful. And I mean, oftentimes cite this offhand remark by a very intelligent young man, very creative man. I'm speaking of David Oyelowo, the actor, black British actor. I recall when when he started getting popular and getting all these roles in Hollywood, he was saying, well, it's because, you know, I I come here and I don't have any of the hangups of these U.S. Negroes, so I can sort of cut to the chase and don't get involved in a lot of this other stuff, which now this is the guy who played Martin Luther King in the movie Selma. Now I'm sure he's an intelligent man. I'm sure somebody pulled his coat and I doubt if he would say that again, but that's just fuel for the fire for the so-called foundational black Americans. I mean, that's, that's what they're, that's what they're looking for. So I would say the bottom line is we all need all the help we can get. We really do, and certain certainly there are contradictions, there are tensions, but we're going to have to find a way to overcome because it's not as if, say, the, the, a certain segment of the ruling class they they get their wish and expel the so-called fund, foundational Black Americans it doesn't mean that the rest of the Black people in North America are home free. That just means they come for you next, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I remember when Angela Davis, more than half a century ago, was just. Becoming well known, she put out this book. If they come from me in the morning, and the rest of the quote is, "They come from me in the morning; they'll come for you in the evening." Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of
1: thinking we, we have to adopt. Thank you, right. thank you, Christian. Do you have a follow up?
2: I guess you know to kind of close out. You know, uh, we we've talked about it, you know some of the the ways to move forward, but you know, overall, you know, again, you know, what are your what are your feelings? about this, you know, uh, about the way forward, you know, do, does a pessimism ever seep, seep in?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, sorry, Dr. Jerry, I know we have you. I'm going to have to ask about the Afro-pessimism
0: question. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> that's, an Afro. that's another question. That's another story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not to throw a curveball at all.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've read some of that literature. I, I can't say that I'm impressed. Uh, I won't go into any detail. Hmm. But I think that some of the nonfiction of the proponents of that point of view have, has been fabricated, quite frankly. Hmm. Oh wow! That it's, do, do it's, you, it's, do it's you? Uh, after this interview closes out, I'll tell you what I mean. Oh, thank you.
1: And I mean, um, remind
0: me in case I forget. And so, no, I'm 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 not a subscriber to that point of view. Now, on the other hand, I understand why in bleak moments that pessimism can seep in. But oftentimes I think it seeps in because uh, people have no understanding of the global struggle. Because certainly if you just look at the United States, there's good reason to be pessimistic. But once you look beyond the United States and look at the world struggle, Mm -hmm. and you look at the crisis of U.S. imperialism, then I think you can take on a different understanding.
1: Thank you. Um, we had a few two questions sent in actually. Now I'm just going to pull them up now. Um, the first question was a bit of a light one. It said, "What do you? What does Dr. Gerald Horn do in his spare time? How does he find the time to write so many books?"
0: I've watched lots of movies. I've oh, watched. really?
1: What's your favorite movie?
0: It's, I, I don't know. I watch about three or four a week, and I've been doing that for years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow! <laughs> what's your What's your
0: favorite genre? Do you favorite well, genre? documentaries for sure. Okay. Although. Usually I can learn something from documentaries. Like after we finish the interview, I'm going to watch a documentary on the history of toys and games. Oh, wow. I got this documentary yesterday. It was supposed to be on horses worldwide. And I thought it was going to go into like the difference between Arabian horses and horses you see running wild in Nevada. Uh, but it wasn't. It was basically just dealing with dressage, which is this sort of... Um, Horse riding competition that you find in the North Atlantic countries, where you teach these horses basically to prance and dance. So I wasn't that much interested in that. But you know, I watch lots of movies, lots of movies. You know, I, I read novels too, but usually I have to I confess the novels I read usually have something to do with a, a project that I'm working on or a project I have worked mm-hmm. on. For example, I just read this novel, for example, about Namibia, and I only mm-hmm. read it because you know I've traveled to N- 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 Namibia, I've written about Namibia. So I just wanted to see what the author had to say. It was a Euro-American author. I was I wanted to see what she had to say about Namibia. So yeah, I guess those are other than reading, especially during the pandemic, because you know I've been in lockdown since the pandemic. Yeah, uh, my, my it's, it's it turned my world upside down. Yeah, do, do you like the, like not just documentaries, but kind of like
2: historical films? I, I mean, like i think of like the Battle of Algiers and stuff. Oh, like sure,
0: that. of course. I've watched the Battle of Algiers, and yeah, you know, you mentioned Burn, which is of course um, one of my favorites. Yeah, I watched all sorts of. I'm, I'm gonna be. Try, I'm gonna try to watch King Richard next week's and mm. Will Smith movie about the Williams sisters. Okay, yeah, I did.
2: Yeah, right I watched that. I watched that. Oh, what did you think? I can't lie. I do feel like they did kind of. Uh, it, it it struck me the wrong way. They kind of, well, what's the word for, uh, not patronize, but um, pathology. I felt like they were kind of pathologizing, you know, some of the other like poor black people who lived in the neighborhood mm-hmm, from, mm-hmm. from which the Williams sisters grew up. That kind of struck me the wrong way. But overall, I guess it was, you know, kind of like a feel good movie about, you know, working hard and you know, making it out
0: the hood or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I tried to watch The Wire. I couldn't get through it though, because mm. speaking of pathologizing, I, I just thought it was just black pathology one on one, so I, I couldn't right, get into right. it. I've watched the series Billions about you know these hedge fund guys on Wall Street, and I plan to watch Succession, which is getting a lot of play in ruling class media about a family not unlike Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News and Wall Street Journal. So, you know, I watch all sorts of movies. I mean, because I, I find it very enlightening and educational, especially documentaries. They're, 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 I look at documentaries as a sort of a crutch. It's a way to fill gaps in my knowledge, for example, mm-hmm. or to prepare me to, I mean, for example, I'm trying to do this project on Southeast Asia. So I began by reading, excuse me, by watching documentaries. About Southeast Asia, just to sort of get a, especially since who knows when I'll be able to travel there given the pandemic, mm-hmm. to get a, a sense of the, the landscape, the cultures, uh, etc. So that's how I spend a lot of my time.
1: Thank you so much for that. I have a few questions, but I'm going to use that as an excuse to invite you back onto the show for <laughs> next time. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Dr. Gerald Horn. Um this as always has been a, a super enlightening episode. Please like, comment, subscribe, the Malcolm effect on Spotify, Apple Music. And until next time, people, peace out.